0: Alright, right, so here we are to part four. Um, This is what we're going to learn today. So today we're going to talk about men and women created in God's image. And what does that mean to be created in God's image? We're going to talk specifically about how people are different from the rest of creation. Uh, We're going to talk about the first commandment, what were Adam and Eve told to do uh, as soon as God created them. And we're going to talk about the original dietary law. So uh, there have been, the Bible has a number of rules about uh, food. And the very first one is in Genesis chapter 1. And so we're going to talk about that. Uh, but first, let's take a review of what we did last week. So uh, we talked, uh, going back to the first week, about worldviews and what, what is a worldview and the kind of questions that everybody's worldview has. So everybody has a worldview, and everybody's worldview answers these questions in some way. Who am I? The nature of mankind. Where do I come from? The origins. Who is in charge? The rulemaker or sovereign. How should I live my life? What, what are the rules of morality and ethics? And what happens when I die? The future in eschatology. So today, when we talk about the creation of man we're really going to look at this question, the, the real answer to this question, who am I, uh, and where do I come from? And also, all along in Genesis 1, we've been talking about who's in charge. We see very clearly who's in charge, who is it that's making everything, uh, and who has the authority to make rules. Uh, but today, who am I? We're going to answer that, that question, the, the true answer to that question, who am I, what's the nature of mankind? And so um, at the beginning of last class, we I, I brought this this quote from John Calvin. And so John Calvin wrote an excellent commentary on the book of Genesis. At the very beginning of it, he says, Since the infinite wisdom of God is displayed in the admirable structures of the heaven and earth, it is absolutely impossible to unfold the history of the creation of the world in terms equal to its dignity. For while the measure of our capacity is too contracted, too to comprehend things of such magnitude, our tongue is equally incapable of giving a full and substantial account of them. And so we talked about the magnificence of God's creation last week, but we certainly can't do it justice. There's no way to do it justice. Uh, So we talked about the things that were created each day last week. And so just as a refresher, in the first day, God created time and space. And Thousands of years later, we figured out, hey, these time and space things seems to be related. Uh, when we look at uh, the theory, special theory of relativity, and matter and light um, are are or energy are related as well. So time, space, matter, and energy are created in the first day, and those turn out to be interrelated. That uh, energy can be <coughs> made from matter, matter can be made from energy, uh, but the total of energy and, and matter can't be created or destroyed. It was all created at the beginning. Time, space, matter, and light or energy on day one. Uh, We talked about the fact that on the second day, God made the atmosphere, and he made it just right, just perfect for mankind to live. Uh, The right amount of nitrogen, the right amount of oxygen, just enough oxygen for us to breathe, but not so much oxygen that the entire atmosphere catches on fire the first time there's a spark. Um, Just enough carbon dioxide for all the plants, but not so much carbon dioxide that it poisons us, for example. The third day, the dry land appears. So originally, it was a uh, the earth was all covered with water. Then the dry land appears on day three. Uh, The earth is still covered with a lot of water. About seventy percent of the surface is water, thirty percent land, and the oceans are deeper than the mountains are high. You could sink Mount Everest into the Marianas Trench and still have six thousand five hundred feet of water on top of it. Uh, If you flattened out the uh, or smoothed out the earth into a perfect sphere, there would be an ocean two miles deep covering the entire thing. Uh, that's how much water there is around. Also on day three, the plants appeared. So God's gradually building up uh, the earth so that it's, it's suitable for mankind to live. And so dry land and then plants on day three. God also made the, um, the hydrographic cycle, the water cycle, uh, such that we never run out of water. Water evaporates out of the oceans, goes up into the clouds, comes back down as rain, runs off the land into the ocean, over and over and over again, and we can never run out of fresh water. Uh, and God did that. Uh, on the fourth day, he makes the sun, moon, and stars. He makes the sun and moon as the special lights uh, to rule the day and to rule the night, and then he makes the stars also, and he made them just perfect. The sun is the right temperature, it's the right distance from the earth. If the Earth was 5% closer, the oceans would boil. Uh, If it was 5% further away, the oceans would freeze. Uh, And so we wouldn't be able to live. But he put it just in the right place that scientists actually call the Goldilocks Zone. Uh, Its technical name is the Habitable Zone. But you'll see, actually, even in in, uh, technical papers, sometimes you'll see this phrase, Goldilocks Zone. Uh, Just the right place. And God did that, too. Uh, The fourth day... Uh, Also, he makes uh, the stars, he makes the moon in just the right place, so it makes the tides just right, so that uh, it mixes up the oceans and oxygenates the the ocean water so fish can breathe. Um, Then on the fifth day, he makes sea creatures. So once he's got everything set up so that sea creatures can live, he makes sea creatures and puts them in the ocean. Uh, He also makes flying creatures on the fifth day, now that there's an atmosphere there. On the sixth day, then, he makes all the land animals. Land animals that will eventually be domesticated animals for man and all different kinds of animals. And all along the way, he makes a tremendous variety of all these things. He doesn't just make one or two kinds of flowers. He makes thousands of kinds of flowers. He doesn't make one or two kinds of butterflies. He makes thousands of kinds of butterflies. Uh, And on and on and on like that, displaying his creativity, showing his glory. That's what creation is all about, is showing forth the glory of God. Uh, So that's what we learned last time. And that sets us up for today, which is the pinnacle of God's creation, which is mankind. And so that's what we're going to focus on today. And so, towards the end of Genesis chapter 1, the last few verses, it goes like this Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So that's the creation of mankind, the very end of God's creative work. And so, the Bible says that uh, on the sixth day, what we just read, so if you have your Bible, make sure you have it open there to Genesis 1. We'll be referring back to it, along with other uh, scriptures as well. So he makes the first man. Adam and the first woman, Eve. And we're going to see in Genesis chapter 2 a little bit more detail of how he did that, but uh, this far we want to just talk about the fact that he made man, Adam and Eve, and he made us in his image. So he had built up and built up and built up the earth. Um, He made the dry land, he made the plants, he made the atmosphere, he made all the other creatures, and that was all making the earth a suitable place for the creation of mankind some creature in his image and so it was ready for his greatest creation the first human beings adam and eve but before that of course god has a little chat Um, he says this let's make man in our image so who is he talking to who is god talking to there Um, he can't be talking to the angels because we're not made in the image of the angels uh, so it has to have been a conversation among the persons of the Trinity, uh, the Heavenly Father, the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. That's who let us make man in our image must be. It, the, it, it can't be anything else. That's all there was to have a conversation with, and it couldn't be the angels, as I said, because we're not made in the image of the angels. Um, so what does it mean to be created in God's... Yes, go ahead. <clears throat>
1: don't want to deal
0: with this question, I'm cool with that. Okay. I've always wondered when the angels were created, since you brought it up. Good question. So um, the Bible does not tell us when the angels were made. So um, that leads to a lot of speculation. Um, when were the angels made? Um, so there, there's an interesting... Uh, John Calvin has has a pretty interesting section in the Institutes on it. Um, It's uh, book one, chapter 14. Uh, He's got a discussion of when the angels were made and how they were made and when did Satan fall and how did he fall. And there's, quite frankly, very little in the scripture that describes that. And and, uh, at the end of that section, Calvin, I'm paraphrasing, he says essentially, if God didn't tell us then we don't need to know. That's that's what that's Calvin's conclusion at the end of that section. I always thought that was funny. That, uh, but if there's some there's some wisdom in that. Um, that uh, can you think of some dangers that might be uh, that might come out of us knowing more about angels than God has revealed? Uh, there's a danger. What 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 happened over and over again when when people encountered angels in the scriptures what did they do what was their first inclination to fall down and worship them and so there's a danger there i i believe that if we if we knew a lot more about these angels and these you know these special messengers of god ministers of god um, we would be even more tempted to to worship them and so um, in god's grace he has not he's revealed Whatever we need to know about angels, but not more, because it's probably not good for us to know more about angels. That, that's that's my conclusion. And, and so it's a long answer to your question that I, I think we don't know exactly when the angels were created. Go ahead. How
1: about I give them a short answer? Since time and space started on day zero right. one, and we know that they're created, and Satan appeared on day. Six afterish,
0: then we'll say somewhere between zero and six. Yeah, so I, I I agree. Somewhere between zero and six is the is the answer. More specific than that, I don't know. Uh, but yes, I think I think we can conclude that somewhere between in the beginning and when Satan was tempting Eve, obviously the angels were created somewhere in there because there's an angel that has fallen by day uh, by the time. Um, Adam and Eve are falling. Yes. It
1: was kind of a, a minor clarification that came up in my mind. Uh, is it assumed that uh, when God created creatures he populated the whole earth? You know, Adam and Eve are one one plus.
0: One, right. hmm
1: uh, and is that assumed that the whole world was populated with
0: these or
1: just so, left and with a question mark?
0: Yeah, so there's no specifics on what the population size of the any of the animals or the, the fish were, but uh, but the the description seems to me that it's not just a couple. It's not
1: just one place. Right. It's not just one place.
0: Right. Yeah. I believe, but but there's there is not a specific uh, description in the Bible. So it, it's it's we'll talk about this actually next week, that when you get to Genesis chapter two, so and this is a common way the Bible does things, is you get a very broad description of things. In Genesis one, it's a very broad description of creation, and then there's a much more specific description of Adam and Eve. Exactly how Adam was created out of the dust of the ground, God breathed into him. Then he took a rib out of Adam and made Eve. But none of that's in Genesis chapter one. All we get in Genesis chapter one is he made uh, man, male and female, in his own image. We don't get any kind of specifics. So we just get this, and so we get a very broad sweep of God creating everything in Genesis one. And then the Bible pivots to the most important part, the part that's going to lead to the story of God's redemptive, redemption of mankind. So the Bible is a story about God's redemption of mankind in Jesus Christ. And so we need background. We need a broad understanding of the background to be able to understand that. But once we get a broad sweep, then the focus then shifts in the Bible to what's really important, the most important thing, and that's men and women. And so we don't get a big detailed description of how many animals they are there were and how they and migration patterns and all that. We don't get that. We we get a very broad sweep and then Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, specifics about man. And so and that's a common pattern. So you'll see that as we go through um, you know when we get to Uh, the Table of Nations, you'll get a broad sweep of the descendants of uh, Ham and Japheth, but then the Bible pivots, and we get much more specific details about the the descendants of Shem, and why is that? That's because Shem is the seed line that's going to go to Jesus Christ, and that's the focus of the Bible, and so we don't get to hear about all those people that, um, that migrated to India and China and South America and North America in spite of what the Mormons say. Um, you don't get to hear about those people. We, we get to hear about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. We don't, and there's hundreds of thousands of millions of people other places in the world. And it's not that God doesn't care about those people. He, he does. But the Bible is a book about Jesus Christ. It's a book about God's redemption of mankind in Jesus Christ. And so we get a very broad picture and then narrow down to what's important to get to the story of God's redemption of mankind in Jesus Christ and it's and that that pattern starts all the way back at creation. So we get and sometimes we're left wanting more. You know, what about the angels and how many where did, how did the animals spread out over the earth and that sort of thing and and we don't get that, we get just a very broad sweep and then focus on the uh, the redemptive story. So I'm I'm sorry that I can't give you a better answer than that, but that's how the that's how the Holy Spirit has decided to shape the Scriptures. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Gabe.
1: So just to add to the uncertainty, um, you noted, I think it was last week, um, that the world that was is not the world that is. And so because of our you know, adaptations, we, we tend to think of we think of the planet as it is now and, you know, how did the animals spread? It's a totally different world. Yeah. <laughs>
0: so... Yeah, there, there. Of course, there are a lot of secular theories about Pangea, that there was only one continent at the beginning, and that very well could be true. And if it was, then there was only one continent for the animals to spread out on, uh, not bunches of continents separated by oceans. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so it is. So it is true that the angels are spirits; they're ministering spirits. They can manifest, um, and did manifest as what looked like people to the pe- to the people they were interacting with. So they came and ate a meal with Abraham, for example. Two angels and a theoph- theophany um, came and ate around the fire with, uh, and then went to Lot's house and you know pulled him in and all kinds of stuff. Those were angels doing that kind of stuff, and so they were they were manifesting in time, space, matter, and energy, uh, and so they're able to do that somehow. But they are spirits, that's true, and so um, like is. You know, God is not confined by time, space, matter, and energy. And his messengers are, there's no reason to to believe for certain that his messengers are completely confined in time, space, matter, like we are. Uh, But they are not God. They're not uncreated. They're not self-existent like God is. Uh, But yes, they, they could very well step into and out of Time, space, matter, energy—at the command of God, for example. We just don't know. We, like I said, we don't get—we don't get a a real lot of description of angels. There are some passages about angels, but we don't get a real, real uh, detailed description. Yeah. So that's another point, another great point uh, uh, that um, you know the world. So we see this tremendous, beautiful world. And it's a shadow of what it was. It's cursed, it's fallen, you know, the, the ground is cursed, everything is cursed, everything is, um, is less than it was before the curse, and less than it will be in the new heavens and the new earth. And so you have John in the revelation of Jesus Christ trying to explain what he sees. You know, his streets made of gold and all this kind of description. He's trying to describe in human language kind of the undescri- indescribable, uh, nature of heaven. Uh, Paul's flat out told he's not even allowed to, to try to describe what it looks like uh, in, in heaven. Um, and so, yes, there's, there's this sense we have of the wonder of God's creation, and that's true. But just imagine what it looked like before the fall. Uh, yeah, another good point. Okay, uh, let's move along. Um, and so the Westminster Confession talks about the image of God and I'll just read this out. After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his own image, having the law of God written in their hearts, and power to fulfill it, and yet under possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject unto change. Besides this law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which while they kept they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. That's the Westminster Confession. So a whole bunch of um, godly men got together for three years and came up with a confession of faith. Uh, and this is what they say about the image of God. So, um, <clears throat> if you uh, are interested, there you can. There's good online resources. You can look at that Westminster Confession of Faith and. They spent three years putting down scripture references for every word, essentially, that they put into that confession of faith. And they've got probably 15 scripture references just for that paragraph uh, right there. Um, So uh, what else? What else can we say about what does it mean to be created in the image of God? So uh, Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology says this, when God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, The meaning is that God plans to make a creature similar to himself. Both the Hebrew word for image, tselem, and the Hebrew word for likeness, demuth, refer to something that is similar but not identical to the thing it represents or is an image of. So, similar but not identical. That's uh, Grudem's conclusion in his systematic theology from those two words, uh, image and likeness. So indeed, we are similar, but not identical to God. So we're similar in that we share God's communicable attributes. So the things that God can communicate to us or, or, or give to us are things like reason, love, will, discernment, morality, and language. In those ways, we are similar to God. We are not identical, however, because we are created beings and we could never share what are known as God's incommunicable attributes such as his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, and his self-existence. God is the only self-existent being. Every other being, everything else is contingent on God, created by God. So in the beginning, before time, space, matter, and energy, there was God, and God alone He is self-existent. Everything else is dependent on God. So what else? Um, This image of God. So the image of God in Latin you may hear it, imago Dei. Uh, That phrase means image of God. Imago, image, Dei, God, image of God. Uh, It refers to the immaterial part of humanity. God is spirit and so the image of God that we have, the ways that we're similar to God, have to be immaterial things. And so, but, however, those things set us apart from other things in creation, like animals. And those things that are the image of God, that are the similarities we share with God, um, are, that's what fits us for dominion that God intends for us to have over the earth. And we'll see that in a minute in Genesis 128. And it also enables us to commune with our Creator. So it's a likeness, a similarity in things like uh, mentally, morally, and socially. Those are the sort of things that we have from this image of God that make us similar to him. So mentally, uh, humanity created as a rational, volitional agent. Uh, In other words, human beings can reason and choose. Uh, And this is a reflection of God's intellect and freedom. So anytime a person, a human being, invents something, invents a machine, writes a book, paints a landscape, enjoys a symphony, calculates a sum, names a pet, he or she is proclaiming the fact that we are made in the image of God. All these things that we do and we never think about in daily life. People that, uh, uh, whenever you create something, that is a demonstration, a display of the image of God. And So when you go to a symphony, Uh, and you hear the beauty of the music, the creation of that symphony is a display of the image of God in mankind. Because dolphins don't write symphonies. Uh, Badgers don't write symphonies. Um, You know, your cat is not going to paint the Mona Lisa. Uh, It's just, those things are just qualitative massive differences between mankind and the rest of creation and those things are an an imitation, a similarity and a display of the image of God because as we talked about last time, God showed this tremendous creativity when he made the world. All this great variety and beauty um, and that is a display of his creativity and so he, when he made mankind in his image, he gave us, in part, that kind of creativity. And so that's a display of his image whenever you see that. Uh, morally, human, humanity was created in righteousness and perfect innocence. So this is before the fall. Uh, yeah, Just question. A question. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, when God became man, he looked
0: like us. Correct.
1: Um, what did he look like prior to that?
0: So, <laughs> no, because, because my thinking is, right, so.
1: obviously God knew what man was going to look like, so part of it being created in his image he already knew. But yeah. what, what did he look like prior to that?
0: So uh, God's a spirit, right. and so he didn't look like anything. Uh, he's right. not time, space, matter, or energy. So the, the, what we think of as looking like something is matter. Uh, you know, matter. It's made of stuff. and And God's not made of that stuff. And so, in that sense, he can't look like anything.
1: Right, but when he became man, he took one human form,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and he rose. He said, "Touch me, you'll see. You know, I'm eating with you, etc." So he rose in that same.
0: Yeah. So form. Jesus, so Jesus right now, right? So Jesus is eternally the God-Man. So right. Jesus is 100 percent God and 100 percent man, and so he has a, a risen body. Right. Um, as well yes so and and of course john recognized him uh, but he uh, he had an interesting reaction so in the revelation of jesus christ in in revelation chapter one god sees the risen uh, john sees the risen christ and so remember who john is john is like the best friend of jesus he, he's been three years he's been with him eating around the fire you know uh, living our you know, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, this is a close personal friend of his. And what's John's reaction when he sees the risen Christ? He falls down on his face like a man dead uh, when he sees the, the risen Christ in his glorified body in heaven. That's his immediate reaction. Now he doesn't run up to give him a hug. Uh, he falls down on his face. And so um, Jesus' glorified body is something else. Um, but you know, that's, you know, Jesus was uniquely 100% God and 100% man. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the eternal God uh, from uh, time memorial before, in the beginning, is spirit, mm-hmm. not time, space, matter, and energy. So nothing that could be seen. Mm-hmm. So that's, he didn't look like anything that, that we can interpret. Yeah, so there were a number of theophanies in the Old Testament, and so that's a appearance, some sort of an appearance of Jesus Christ. Uh, so there's one with Abraham, and so Abraham saw three men, three men, and two of them were angels, and one of them was Jesus Christ, a theophany, uh, and so they looked like men. Um, but you know, how did they do that? How did God make angels look like men? Uh, there's really no description or explanation about how he did that, but somehow he did that. He made angels look like, to other people, look like men. And Jesus, of course, was actually born as a man. Yes. Don't know. Um, uh, you know, Moses uh, seemed to recognize him at the of transfiguration. Uh, so uh, at one point there was uh, Jesus and Moses and Elijah um, and you know they're talking and they you know Moses seems to recognize who who Jesus is um, how that is you know that's a that's a mystery to me uh, but but God knew what Jesus was going to look like um, and so um, yeah nothing surprises God so God knew what Jesus was what he was going to do and put Jesus when Jesus became a a hundred percent man a hundred percent God he's always been Hundred percent, God. But uh, what He would, what God would look like, I think, is um, you, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a question that we we probably ask ourselves starting when we're five or six years old. But the the true answer of what God looks like as a spirit, somebody that's not time within time, space, matter, and energy, is doesn't look like anything unless God decides to. Reveal himself as something. Uh, he did that with Moses. Uh, hit him in the cliff, cliff of the rock. Put his hand over him. Passed his glory by. Moses could see his back. Well, what does that mean? What does God's back look like? Um, you know, there's there's no more description than that in in the in the scriptures that Moses was able to see God's back. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Gabe. Uh, so just because
1: I see um, or read people explaining an aspect of the image of God in man as pertaining to our physical body, so you may have one through slide that it pertains to our physical body, and the explanation is, well, scripture says God has eyes, his eyes are on the righteous, he has hands, he has a strong right arm.
0: So that's the uh, anthropomorphizing of God. And so uh, God is described in Scripture in human terms, and that's called anthropomorphizing. It's, it's putting God in terms that we can best understand, uh, using eyes and hands and feet and things like that that he doesn't physically have. Um, to, to make the point of the things, to make a point about things that he does. Um, so the scripture does that, describes um, God in anthropomorphical terms um, continuously uh, in a number of places. But, but that doesn't mean God is a physical body. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. Okay, so the, the next thing is morally. Created in righteousness, perfect innocence, and a reflection of God's holiness. Remember, in Genesis 1.31, after this, he sees um, all that he has made, including mankind, and called it very good. So very good for uh, a perfect God. Um, and so Adam and Eve were created in righteousness and in innocence. So we also, we also have a conscience, a moral compass, uh, which is a vestige of this original state. Whenever someone writes a law recoils from evil, praises good behavior, feels guilty. Uh, He or she is confirming the fact that we are made in God's image. So every day we have these unmistakable confirmations of the image of God in man. Uh, Every time we see one of these things, every time we see evil and recoil from it, every time we see something good and praise it, uh, every time we feel guilty when we did something wrong, This is an unmistakable demonstration of God's image in us. So socially, humanity was created for fellowship. Uh, This reflects God's triune nature and his love. Uh, In Eden, humanity's primary relationship was with God, and God made the first woman because it's not good for the man to be alone. So part of the image of God is this idea of social fellowship. Every time someone gets married or makes a friend or hugs a child or attends church, he or she is demonstrating the fact that we are made in the likeness of God in this area of social, this social area, this this um, needing to have um, fellowship with others, uh, striving to have fellowship with others. Part of being made in God's image is that Adam had the capacity to make free choices. Um They were given a righteous nature. Adam and Eve made an evil choice to rebel against the creator. And then since then, of course, everything's different. They marred the image of God within themselves and passed that damaged likeness on to all their descendants. Uh, We read about that in Romans 5. And so we still have the image of God, but that image is forever uh, marred by the fall. Yes. Yes. No, no. It's this is a this is a very important area to get to get right. Go ahead.
1: And so in Colossians, it refers to Jesus as the image of the invisible God, mm-hmm. and I and even in the last conversation, i had always thought of that in terms of like God, uh, the sort of the manifestation of we see God as. It would look like Jesus, but right here, does that? In Colossians, is that also referring to the idea that
0: he's the unmarred image of God, is So, yeah. So, yeah. There's a, there's a very interesting uh, in Romans. Of course, uh, Paul goes into this in great detail. That uh, you have the the first Adam, and so we have this the image of God passed to us in the first Adam that is marred, fallen, the sin nature, um, and then we have the image passed to us from the second Adam, from Christ, in regeneration. So in redemption, when we're redeemed, when we're regenerated by the Holy Spirit, redeemed uh, by the blood of Christ, justified before a holy God, then we have a new image. We're a new creation, the Bible tells us. A new creation, created in Christ Jesus. Now, the tricky part comes with the fact that uh, then Romans 7 comes along, and, and Paul laments the fact that he he's still got the sin nature in him. So we have this new new nature, we're a new creation in Christ, and yet we still sin. Um, and so we're becoming conformed to the likeness of Christ, and when we are with Christ in heaven, we're um, in his glory, There's there's no sin, no guilt, no shame, All that's done away with, uh, but in the meantime, so from the time you're born to the time you die, you have a sin nature. From the time you're born again to the time you go to heaven, you have a new nature. You are a new creature created in Christ Jesus. But we still struggle with sin. Um, And so this is kind of um, one of the the primary lessons of the doctrine of original sin. This idea that we get our fallen, broken, uh, marred image from Adam, but we get a new image from Christ. And then the mystery comes, at least to me, in that when this new image comes, then there's a process of sanctification for as long as you live. So the thief on the cross had like a, a two-hour process of sanctification. Uh, there was a couple hours between his conversion and his death. Uh, my grandmother just died a couple years ago. She was 104. Uh, she, she came to Christ at the age of 13, and so 91 years was her process of sanctification. Uh, she she walked uh, as a follower of Christ for 91 years. Um, so each one of us has a different amount of time where we're we're walking in this life, with still a um, still s- subject to uh, the old man that that brought sin, that brought the, the, the the descendant of Adam, such that we still sin. Uh, but from the point of Uh, justification, from the point of salvation, we have a new nature. Uh, Yeah. And the Bible describes it as a war sometimes. Yeah. Uh,
1: Talking about sin, and and you had mentioned that we were created with a conscience. Yep. And I I love where you're going with all these things because it's like, oh, wait, I got a different thought about that, or that's challenging my idea about that I kind of assume or carry with me. One of the assumed ideas that I've carried with me for a while is that our conscience came to us at the fall when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, can you help me understand where you support the idea that we're created with the
0: conscience? Yeah, so um, we're cre- we were created with righteous nature because uh, in Genesis 131 we see that everything that God had made is very good and that includes mankind. So we're, we were created... With a righteous nature um, yes. and innocence, now a conscience, I would say, is kind of the leftover remnant of the of the marred righteous nature. So that's the way, that's the way I would put it. It's kind of a leftover remnant of that. And our consciences, of course, are not perfect. Um, people are able to trick their conscience, or fool their conscience, or sear their conscience. The Bible describes. Uh, and so uh, the, the conscience is a, a gift of God. It's, by God's grace, we have a conscience that, that makes us feel bad if we did something wrong. Uh, but our consciences are not perfect. And so our consciences can be trained um, to, to recognize the wrong thing as good, for example. So there are people that do the wrong thing and think they're doing the right thing. Um, and so, yeah. So the conscience is subject to the fall. I mean, it's it's not perfect. Yeah.
1: Say, when you when Eve sent, when even Adam ate the apple, the fruit, um, and then their eyes were open and they knew they were naked and they were ashamed and they right. was that just they had the conscience, they knew, you know, to keep away from the fruit, hmm? but then because they had sinned against God, that they, I mean.
0: Yeah, we'll talk yeah, about that. Guilty. Right. When we get to we Gen- we'll talk a lot about that when we get to Genesis chapter three. Uh, what it meant that their eyes were open, and the fact that they um, they had heard God's command uh, that they weren't supposed to eat that fruit, and uh, and Satan comes to Eve, and and his his phrasing is very interesting. Did God really say? Yeah. So his idea was to cast doubt on what God said, and then. Uh, and then Eve comes, you know, he's playing on Eve's um, um, desires, her, her, you know, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, uh, pride of life. All three are right there. We'll talk about those when we get to Genesis chapter three, that, that uh, Eve walks through the steps of, of, of sin. Um, you know, she's Satan puts it out there for her. Um, and she she goes for it. And so she disobeys. Um, so, yeah, well, we, there's... We, we don't have time to do it now, but we're going to go through it. When we, when we get to Genesis chapter 3, we'll go through all the steps that happened there um, and how it is that, that Eve ended up disobeying God. Um, but at, at this point, yes. She, so she had this ability to... Uh, to make free choices. Adam and Eve had the ability to make these choices. Um, now, was, was God surprised that Eve I mean, made the wrong choice? No, he was not surprised. Uh, we'll talk about that as well, uh, that God had this whole thing, uh, the whole thing went according to God's plan. Um, and we'll talk about the implications of that as well. Yes? Before the
1: fall, Adam and Eve had a
0: Yeah, so uh, I I have to be careful there because uh, because uh, obviously the conscience didn't uh, didn't keep them from sinning. So yeah, so they uh, so whatever it was that they had, they ended up sinning. Let me just put it that way. So whatever whatever advantages Adam and Eve had in the garden, they 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 still fell. Yeah. Okay.
1: He does make a bit of a comment on it. He says in two fourteen, he goes, When the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are the law to themselves. And that they show that they were the uh, that the work of the law was written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts authenically accusing them
0: or else defending them. I mean, So yeah, so part opening up a window I think I think that's right. So part of common grace is a conscience. Um, and so even non-believers have a conscience. Right. Um, the, the the tricky part comes in that the, that conscience is subject to the fall, oh, yeah. uh, that human nature has fallen. And that includes your will, that includes your conscience. And do, do, we, do we have free will? We're, we're going to get to there when we talk about Genesis 3 as well. Um, and it, it depends on what you mean by free uh, is what it's going to come down to. Um, everybody has free will in the sense that we're free to choose in accordance with our own wants, needs, and desires. But our wants, needs, and desires before regeneration are fallen. And so we freely choose uh, our fallen wants, needs, and desires, which doesn't get us anywhere. Um, if that's free will, okay, we'll call that free will, but that kind of freedom is not going to get you anywhere but to enslave the sin. Um, okay, so um, this idea of um, being able to make free choices uh, Adam and Eve did, um, and they made this uh, choice to, uh, to disobey. It marred the image of God in themselves. They passed that damaged likeness to descendants, including us. And so today we still bear the image of God in accordance with James chapter 3, but we also bear the scars of sin mentally, morally, socially, physically. We show the effects of sin in every single way. Uh, how, how do, what's the primary effect of sin on the physical body? we die, right? So there's the mark of sin right there. We die physically. But we also have it mentally, morally, socially as well, uh, the effects of sin. Uh, The good news, of course, is that when God redeems an individual, he begins to restore the original image, creating a new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, That redemption is only available, of course, by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior, from the sin that separates us from God. And so this is the story of the Bible, the redemption of fallen mankind by Jesus Christ. And so it's important to understand the front end. How did this all get to be this way? Um, But the very front end of it is men created in God's image. Through Christ we are made new creations in the likeness of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, And so I want to wrap up this little discussion about the image of God with um, a quote from Francis Schaeffer, one of my favorites. Um, So in his book Genesis in Space and Time, he says, this phrase, the image of God, is as important as anything in scripture because men today can no longer answer that crucial question, who am I? In his own naturalistic theories with an evolutionary concept of a mechanical chance parade from the atom to man, man has lost his unique identity. As he looks out upon the world, as he faces the machine, he cannot tell himself from what he faces. He cannot distinguish himself from other things. Quite in contrast, a Christian does not have this problem. He knows who he is. And so that's why we need to get this foundation down in Genesis, especially Genesis chapter one. We need to know who we are. And who we are is created in God's image um, and created for his glory. Uh, and, and our secular neighbors who are, are groping around in the dark, they don't know who they are. And uh, that's a huge problem. And so we need to figure out a way, uh, often if you're going to give somebody the gospel and they don't understand this. They don't understand who they are as created in God's image. Then the gospel then doesn't make sense. Uh, who is this God? Who am I? Why do I, what's, what do I need to savior? Um, and why this Jesus? And so this is often a place where you need to start. Um, and so um, we don't have time. Uh, maybe someday I'll tell a story about, um, about this guy that, uh, that I've been talking to, and and Robbie's been talking to also, um, trying to get him to understand who he is. Uh, He's a a man, he's a, I'll I'll give you a little bit of background. He's a a physicist, like me. Um, He's a a postdoc student at the University of Pennsylvania that took a Bible study with my father. My father does Bible studies for international or foreign exchange students and uh, he asked me to get involved with this guy because he's a physicist and so I've been trying to under explain this concept of who, who he is who God is and who he is as as a foundation for the gospel but he's um, he's got a background he's from India and so he's got this background of um, the Hindu background of reincarnation and all this this kind of thing and so Robbie and Jeanette spent hours talking to him and, I, and I've uh, corresponded with him as well but, uh, but if you grew up in some other background and, and you've got this kind of uh, uh, image burned into your mind of, of who man is and it's wrong it's not the true image of who man is from, from scripture then it can be very difficult uh, to, to get to that person with the gospel until they can get at least some understanding of this the idea that they're created in God's image and who that God is, whose image they're created in. Uh, okay, so uh, all of my copies of Schaeffer are all marked up and stuff. So this is an uh, 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 um, illustration from the Schaefer book I was just talking about, and I, I wrote all over it, but I, I Xeroxed a part of it because I like this description. So God is a personal and infinite. So his attributes, uh, personal and, and infinite attributes, his nature, uh, there's a divide about how that image relates to man. So on the side of God's infinite attributes, there's a huge chasm between God and man. And man is much closer to animals and plants and machines, for example, in, in terms of comparing ourselves to God's infinite nature. God's personal nature, that man and God are close and there's a huge chasm between man and God and animals and plants and machines. Um, and that's one of the ways that Schaeffer explains this idea of how we're made in God's image. So, yeah, go ahead. Sure. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's another way of saying that same sort of thing. Uh, is God has these infinite... traits that are incommunicable to us. We're not infinite. We're finite. Yes.
1: also make the argument that our image of image bearing is not physical because Jesus was born without sin and you couldn't tell him physically apart from anybody else who was
0: corrupted in their physicalness. Right. Well, so that's true. So that, uh, you know, Adam and Eve looked Similar to us before they fell. And so when they fell, I, I don't, the Bible doesn't explicitly say, but I don't think their outward appearance suddenly changed dramatically when they fell. You know, they, they did die, and they most likely, we'll talk about this, uh, started the process of dying physically then, but it's not like they. Um, If you had been there, you would have said, wow, they look totally different now. Um, And, of course, Jesus looked like other people. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Uh, So how are people different from the rest of creation? Um, So unlike animals in many ways, for example, God is spirit. So unlike the animals, you have an eternal, immortal spirit. You can be filled with God's Holy Spirit and you can pray to God directly. God is love. So you can love and worship God, love other people, and know his love for you. Animals cannot do this. God is good. God is holy and perfect. This means he never does anything that is wrong, and he commands us to be holy and perfect too, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Leviticus chapter 11, Matthew chapter 5, we're commanded to be holy as God is holy. Unlike the animals, people have a conscience which tells us what is right and wrong, although fallen and imperfect. So other ways that we're different from the animals. We can talk with other people as well as with God. Animals do things like have warning signals, uh, uh, warnings, aggression, or friendship to each other by the sounds they make, the way they stand or move, by facial expressions, or by odor. However, animals can't speak or write a true language. Uh, We can choose what we want to do. Animals do things by instinct, Jude Verse 10, we can comfort others in their sorrows and laugh with others in their joys. One animal may help another, but they do not run first aid clinics and hospitals. So we are extremely distinct from animals in many, many, many ways, if you think it through. Um, We build hospitals and first aid clinics for people. Um, Animals don't do that. We even build animal hospitals for animals. But animals do not build animal hospitals for other animals. Um, Yes, we're distinct. We can cook our meals using fire or electricity. Animals are afraid of fire. We can cultivate the fields, planting and reaping crops. We can invent complex things like computer games, musical instruments, paintings, mathematics, and aircraft, and use clocks to measure time. None of those things can any animal do. Animals may make nests or burrow, but this is the limit of their creativity. God knew that the time would come when God the Son would become a man and live on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. He gave the first man, Adam, the sort of body in which the Lord Jesus Christ would one day appear. So that's, we we've talked around that a little bit uh, earlier and people asked some questions about it, but yes, God knew that Jesus was going to become a man. Uh, and so he made... Uh, he made the body of man, knowing that he was going to, that Jesus was going to be one of those men. Uh, so the first command, we've got a, two more things to do, uh, and then we'll finish and get, have some time for questions. So what, what did God tell Adam and Eve to do once he created them? He gave them a command before the fall. Uh, verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, so he's talking to Adam and Eve, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So he essentially commanded them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and rule over it before the fall. That was the task that God set to mankind. So God created everything. He had absolute sovereignty and authority over everything And then he delegated authority and responsibility to mankind with this commandment. um, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and rule over it. So they were supposed to do something. They weren't supposed to just sit there. They were supposed to do something. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule over it. Um, I'm going to call this the creation mandate. You will often hear it called the dominion mandate. And uh, just to be clear that we're not talking about dominion theology and theonomy and that sort of thing, I won't call it the dominion mandate. I'll call it the creation mandate. Um, the term creation mandate refers, to, and so, you know, if I read dominion mandate, I think this uh, refers to the idea that God's original intent for creation infused mankind with supreme earthly authority along with specific responsibilities. Among these privileges are the rights to freely use all of Earth's animals, plants, and resources for the benefit of humankind. The Hebrew term for rule over used there in verse 28, Radah, implies an absolute (coughs) sovereignty of man over the rest of the earth. Yes? So
1: given that command, um, when it was given to them, um, it doesn't seem like they were in that garden very long before. Correct. I mean, Correct. I'm
0: assuming that still nine months. Yes, so that's a good days. point, and so we will indeed talk about that um, when we talk about uh, Genesis chapter 2, is that I think we are probably constrained to a very short period of time. So in, in their unfallen state, in perfect health, yeah. they were ordered, they were commanded to be fruitful and multiply, and... Um, Most likely the fall happened really quickly uh, because there were no kids born uh, before the fall. Yeah, they most likely were not years and years in that garden. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, there would have been kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point. Um, So the creation mandate. It also implies responsibility to which mankind is bound. As God-appointed ruler, mankind is prohibited from abusing or wasting those aspects of earth he controlled. Since creation ultimately belongs to God, misusing it would be an act of disrespect and irresponsibility uh, towards God's creation. Uh, Likewise, God's command includes an expectation that man will multiply, obligating man to adhere to God's intended plan for human sexuality, heterosexual monogamy. And so we'll talk about that in Genesis chapter 2 as well. At the end of Genesis chapter 2, when God formally institutes marriage also before the fall in Genesis 2.24. Um, that was part of the original command to mankind was to be fruitful and multiply. Um, and so, yeah, that's, so that's implied there. that That's his responsibility to do that. Um, in short, the creation mandate means that man is sovereign over the rest of earth um, because the ultimate authority, God, has told him, has, has delegated that authority to him. So um, what, what does Matthew 28, 18 tell us? Matthew twenty eight eighteen tells us that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's what Jesus said to his disciples right before he told them to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. But to set that up in Matthew 28, 18, he says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me that's a bold statement all authority in heaven and earth so who's got all the authority christ has got all the authority and so anybody that exercises any kind of authority legitimately it's delegated from christ um and so that goes and that is the case all the way back to the creation Uh, god created heavens and earth all that is in them, and has all authority in heaven and earth. And then he goes about delegating. And so uh, throughout Scripture we see various uh, authorities that God has delegated. He's delegated authority to um, husbands in a marriage uh, and husbands and wives of their children. He's he's delegated authority to church leaders in the church. Uh, He's delegated authority to civil rulers. But where does that authority come from? I mean, the scripture is really clear. It's from God. God has all the authority, and He can delegate how He chooses. Yes.
1: Just real quick, the, the mandate: man is expected to reproduce according to God's intended design. Mm-hmm. So, and we can talk about this privately if you'd like. It's too long. But where does that put um, couples who say they've had enough children and decide that some kind of something's going to happen, and they're not going to have any more children?
0: So that's a good question, um, and it's a, a prickly question. Um, I'll refer it to the counseling center. <laughs> <that's a bit. laughs> so, uh, no, really, that's a important um, uh, struggle, an important issue for a couple to um, to work out with the Lord, uh, because you know there are. There are so many different circumstances in this fallen world. People that can't have children. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have adoption. Uh, we have foster families. Uh, we've got uh, people with a lot of children. People with only a few children. Um, but how how people deliberately go about what the what the what the world calls family planning. Mm-hmm. Um, everything that we do in life should be done to the glory of God. And so, as a couple, uh, when you're talking about anything that you do, including how many children to have, um, the first question to ask is, am I making this choice? Am I doing this to bring glory to God? Um, And am I doing it in prayer and seeking the... Uh, the guidance of the Holy Spirit? Am I seeking wise counsel from Christian leaders? Am I going to Pastor Gabe to get counseling on this issue? Um, those are the sort of things that we need to do. Uh, if you're a follower of Christ, and, and there's anything in my life or your life that you're doing that's not to the glory of God, that I can't say, yeah, I made that decision, the reason I made the decision is because I think uh, that that will bring more glory to to Christ. Um if you can't, if you can't honestly say that, well, then you got to take a step back, and you got to, you got to evaluate. Why am I doing this? Why have I decided I don't want to have any more kids? Uh, is it because the Lord has called me to some particular mission field, and I won't be able to uh, fully engage in that mission field if I have more kids? Uh, you know, if I have a wife, even, um, is that why I've, I've just made this decision? Uh, or is it because, you know, I, I, I really want to get a BMW, and if I have another kid, I won't be able to get a BMW, and so I'm not going to have another kid because i got to save up enough for a BMW. There's no way that that's bringing glory to, to Christ. So, yeah, so that's the kind of thing that you got to think through, I think. Uh, but, of course, that's a, a prickly and a thorny issue because uh, nobody wants... Um, uh, Nobody wants somebody else to tell them what they should do in in their own home, in their own family. Except for God. Except for God, and except for the fact that um, the way God has designed the church is that every believer in Christ is supposed to be a member of a local church, mm-hmm. and in the local church we have a church structure that has elders that are in leadership over mm-hmm. the church. and. And the elders are responsible for the flock, mm-hmm. and so if there's a member of the flock that's you know flagrantly flaunting uh, God's design for human beings and and doing it for you know some selfish reason, the uh, the elders are responsible for how that uh, the spiritual life of the of the flock, and so they they have a, a, a right to to know to interfere. Uh, in, that, in that regard. Yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, uh, is there consequences for, I'm sure, obviously there is consequences, is there consequences for not following this command? Because up until this point in history, man has been following this command. But we're getting, getting apparently, in some other countries like in China, they had one child... Now they have shrinking population. Yeah. And now they're having a hard time. They reversed the one child.
0: Yeah. It's hard to get back to where. Yeah. Yeah. And so China's an interesting example. Um, There is a body of literature now um, that is analyzing population data from China. And it, it sure looks grim for China in the 2030s, for example that their population looks like it's going to fall off a cliff uh, because of what they did over like a 30 or 40 year period with this one child policy. They've got such an enormous imbalance between men and women because everybody wanted a boy. If you could only have one, everybody wanted a boy and so there are no girls. And so there are, there's an imbalance that goes to the tens of millions. It's like 38 million more men than women in the generation that's just coming to adulthood in China, they, they have no hope of ever being married. No hope. So they have no hope of ever having kids. Um, and the population, and, and so that's what happens when you decide that, when men decide that they know better than God. That's what happens. Um, yeah, so it's that's kind of grim. And so, yeah, and so di- just flagrantly flaunting and disobeying what God says always leads to poor results. Always, yeah. We we'll see another example of that in in um, in um, Genesis chapter chapter eleven, uh, because people are told to be fruitful and multiply and and fill the earth. They're told to spread out, and they flagrantly decide not to do that, not to obey that. And it leads to bad consequences. It always leads to bad consequences when we disobey God. Uh, So the the last thing I want to talk about is the dietary laws. And so they were told to eat plants. Um, That the people were told to eat plants and animals were told to eat plants. And notice that at the end of that, it says, and it was so. So not only does God say that's the way it's supposed to be, God says, and it was so, that's the way it was. And so the animals ate plants. They didn't eat each other they mm-hmm. ate plants it was so god says people and animals ate plants um, and then there was uh, in genesis chapter 9 when uh, noah and his sons and sons wives and his wife the eight people came off the ark god reiterated the command to be fruitful multiply and fill the earth genesis chapter 9 verse 1 be fruitful multiply fill the earth why did he have to do that well there's kind of a reset so there had been millions of people they were all drowned in the flood except for these eight people and to the eight people he says the same thing as he said to adam and eve be fruitful and multiply fill the earth he told them what they were supposed to do coming off that ark Mm -hmm. but he also says one other thing he says every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you i give all to you as i gave the green plant so just like he had previously given green plants to eat in genesis chapter nine he tells them they can eat animals and he hearkens he back to what he said in Genesis chapter 1. Just like I told you you could eat plants in Genesis chapter 1, now in Genesis chapter 9 I tell you you can eat animals. Okay, so that's the lesson for today and we've run out of time. So let me, uh, uh, so we'll be moving on to the Garden of Eden uh, next week. Let me uh, close this with prayer.